on this episode of Optimal Health Uncovered. A lot of times I would have young patients and it would be difficult for them to even sit up in bed. And it was very scary for them, previously very active, to sit at the edge of the bed and they would be like, why am I having such difficulty with this? Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Optimal Health Uncovered. Today, we're here with Kevin Cote, not Cota, as one would think, and Kira Klum, one of our new physical therapists here in Darien. So, Kevin, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having us. We're really excited. Where's Kira? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, Kevin, why do people say Cota instead of Cote? It's a long story, but Cota is wrong. So, let's just go with Cote, okay? It's <laughs> fancier, and it sounds better, so... It's also not as intuitive, so. No, yeah, it, it starts a conversation, so which is good. Okay, all right. Uh, so we're here today to talk about uh, post-COVID. We're doing a bit of a reflection on the past year plus of us being in a pandemic and seeing people who not just had COVID, but also suffer from post-COVID or long COVID symptoms. Let's just have, you know, Kira's new to us here at Performance, so we're really excited to have her. She's working with us here at our Darien office, but let's have her... Um, you know, we've all had patients who've had COVID, you know, now that, you know, millions of people have had it and they've come through our doors. I have had a couple of young people have it who've had some long hauler type symptoms related to respiratory issues long-term who have been athletes, but let's have Kira kind of just go through her experience of who she is, but also her experience so far with working in a COVID unit in a post-COVID, um, treating post-COVID patients as well as active COVID patients. Cause I think that's where the conversation, you know, really takes off from there. So Kira, go ahead. Tell us a little bit quickly just about you and where your schoolwork was done and then those experiences. Hi, I'm Kira Klom. I'm the new physical therapist at the Darien location. I started out on a COVID unit in December, 2020, kind of the heat of when things were shutting down. It was in a skilled nursing facility. So people who aren't really understanding how that works, when patients are in the hospital, if they feel that they are stable enough for them to leave but are not stable enough for them to go home, they enter skilled nursing facilities where they still have care to help them. So we were having a lot of patients that were being flooded into the skilled nursing facility in December during the heat of it because when it was getting really bad, they were filling up emergency rooms, filling up ICUs, people were being ventilated. And if you weren't really ventilated and they felt that you didn't need emergency care, you were being pushed into skilled nursing facilities. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we were getting flooded. We had to create a long portion of the unit of the skilled nursing facility into just COVID positive and COVID observation unit. So I treated both patients that were on observation for COVID and patients that were positive for COVID. So on top of this, yeah, COVID took the world by storm and it was really a huge pandemic going on, but people were still having standard injuries. So patients would come in with fractured hips. Patients would come in with following car accidents and then would be COVID positive. So there was a lot of different factors going on with these patients besides just being COVID positive as well. But we also had patients coming in with increasingly difficult symptoms with COVID. It sounds like a stressful situation to work in. Obviously, as a healthcare worker, especially working with people who are positive, I mean, it's not just like a PT clinic where um, usually you come in and once you've tested negative for COVID, it's you're working directly with them. So I'm sure that was a lot of stress to make sure that you don't catch it, but also make sure that you give people the appropriate treatment and not just kind of shy away from them because you're scared mm. to catch the disease. Oh, absolutely. It was 
very eerie working on the unit. It was quite quiet where in facilities like that, typically family members can visit. And at that point, nobody was allowed in the unit except for healthcare workers. You had to go through screening to get into the building and get out of the building. There were constant temperature checks. You're being tested for COVID twice a week, plus in over the over the weekend lab results as well. So it was very strict. Uh, It was eerie in a sense that we didn't know a lot about how it was being transmitted at that point. Mm -hmm. So we had all the PPE based on the current guidelines and it would still have that chance of walking in the room and thinking, do we know the most valid research on what's going on right now at this point in time? I would say, so for you, Kara, definitely a different step working in a setting like where we are now, where everything is fun and energetic and people are here because they want to be here and want to return back to sports or leisure activities where when you're working in a skilled nursing facility with people who, you know, didn't choose to be there and are very sick, but physical therapy is still a vital part of getting them normal again or as normal as possible again, it's a different atmosphere. So it takes a different kind of person who can go to work every day and do that. So what do you feel though, um, back to Natalia's original question regarding that post COVID long haulers syndrome, like how are we currently defining that for people? Because, you know, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was, and I think Kira and I, we talked about it, but like, if you have the flu, you might feel bad for three, four days, and then you feel bad still for another week, you're kind of run down, but then you recover and you bounce back and you feel great. So how are we, or how's the, you know, CDC or any of them defining that long haulers and it is a syndrome right now, right? So it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, the criteria is not set in stone, but how are they defining it right now? So long haulers, for those who don't understand, it's patients who continue to feel symptoms after the days or weeks of like the typical course of the disease. So the, we don't have a lot of research on who it's absolutely presenting in right now, but in just clinical experience following COVID after I left the COVID unit, I was seeing a lot of patients in standard orthopedic settings that were coming in, going to their doctor saying, I don't feel like I can go back to exercise safely or go back to my daily life safely based on how run down I feel from this disease, previously very active people. And people that were coming in, you'd think would be, you know, older population or people with heart issues. I saw a lot of people who were younger that initially presented with milder symptoms. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that was a thing. And the long haulers, the statistics they have on it right now, too, is that Severe reactions are typically, it takes people about three to six weeks to recover. And most people, about 80% of people get better with it about two weeks and 10% of people continue to feel symptoms past the six week mark. So are those care then that 10% past six weeks, do you think those are the long hauler people we're starting to talk about here? Those people who have gotten back to day-to-day life, but those symptoms have now persisted beyond kind of that six-week mark. Yes, absolutely. And there's certain like symptoms that are present that are typically common. Uh, Coughing, chest tightness, shortness of breath, headaches, muscle aches, diarrhea. The most significant one people seem to report is fatigue, like you were talking about with the flu. Uh, A big one is taste and smell that a lot of people are having difficulties with. There are certain remedies that we would utilize that aided a lot of patients in terms of regaining their taste and smell back that we utilize. Yeah. So Kira, tell, Kira's told me about this. I don't believe it, but she's going to tell us about <laughs> it. So what is it? Um, so tell us about the secret that I guess you guys did try to utilize and did have success with in getting mm-hmm. back taste or smell. Cause I think as crazy as it sounds for people who may listen or may know people who are still battling it, it's so silly and crazy, but if it works, it's uh, 
you know, worth doing. Maybe if you say it on a podcast, Kevin will finally believe you. Oh, Oh, maybe. (laughs) So we actually, there was a viral video going around for a while about taking an orange over a gas stove and charring the complete outside of it and then Mm -hmm. peeling the peel off and eating the orange in the inside. Good old TikTok. (laughs) Oh yeah. And so it was going viral for a little bit and we thought we were on the COVID unit and we had an occupational therapist who was from Jamaica And she was speaking to us about how the herbal remedies that she used to use for certain sicknesses in terms of losing that, like any kind of taste and smell slightly in terms of sickness, they would utilize a similar remedy. Hmm. So we tried it on a few of the patients and a few of the patients actually regained their taste and smell back following. I guess it's kind of like shocking the senses with some kind of smell. So it's similar to how like spicy food kind of stimulates you. yeah it could be the chemical reaction like yeah. Yeah. The but it wasn't a, it wasn't always a one-time and better right it was oh, like no. tried a few times mm-hmm. but you know if anyone's listening you know if you've seen the video i've never seen it you know um but very easy to do i mean you could mm-hmm. do that at home no problem and try it if you have people who still have that loss of taste or smell but um so yeah but what about also tell us about you know the treatment uh, stuff you were doing with people who were going through covid and then maybe were kind of entering that six weeks, still feeling symptoms. What were you guys working on uh, and monitoring as well as they were progressing back to feeling normal again? In the acute phases in the skilled nursing facility, when they were positive with COVID, we were working a lot on just getting them up and out of bed. So we didn't know a lot about the course of the disease. We didn't know what it was really affecting. We noticed that people were having issues with shortness of breath, breathing, regulating breathing properly. People were having issues with vital signs, including like blood pressure, heart rate, and respiratory rate, basic things that you see like in deconditioned people as well. Uh, A lot of times I would have young patients and it would be difficult for them to even sit up in bed. And it was very scary for them previously, very active to sit at the edge of the bed. And they would be like, why am I having such difficulty with this? Right. Especially now when you think, when we factor in vaccines into the equation, it's like, well, okay, well now I have this vaccine. I'm not probably not going to very likely to not be hospitalized from this disease, but you're so young, you can still get these post-COVID symptoms, even through just getting mild symptoms, which is just terrifying. You think you're doing everything right, and yet still you can be faced with the possibility of feeling sick for months. Absolutely. Um, Sorry, back to Kevin's question about what exactly were you doing? So you were monitoring their heart rates, their breathing rates. What kind of uh, treatment options did you present to them? So it was very different from like a standard orthopedic or sports outlook in an outpatient setting like Mm -hmm. here. So when we were in there, a lot of it was focusing on function. These people were having difficulty just sitting up in bed, getting up and standing on their own without help. So a lot of us at times it would take a team of PTs and OTs, like occupational therapists with us to help stand these patients up, just getting used to standing tolerance. They would get lightheaded and dizzy and they would get shortness of breath and we'd have to sit them back and just working on that, getting them up and moving. Because at that point we didn't know a lot about how to help COVID, but what we knew was that getting them up and out of bed and moving would prevent any secondary complications that would happen as a result that could likely be fatal. Right. I've, I've seen some studies moving around and you've also just uh, sent me two of them about how sedentary uh, positions over prolonged periods of time can actually lead to other conditions. Can you go into that? So what exactly could be those side effects and secondary conditions from that? So the main thing that we were thinking about on the unit, which you think about as a healthcare worker in terms of immobility in an acute setting like this Mm -hmm. is blood clots or things called DVTs. They're deep vein thrombosis in the legs. So prolonged immobility can cause these blood clots in the legs that can dislodge and come up to the lungs and cause a pulmonary embolism, which is life-threatening. 
So prolonged immobility causing these blood clots. And likely you'd think these are people that are not moving or living. It's just a general, general sedentary lifestyle. I had patients that post-COVID, after I was on the COVID unit and the general outpatient, very active male come in. There's this thing called the Wells Criteria, which is a list of things. And you get a point if you have any of these things on the list that assume, make it. I assume points are bad. Points are bad. So the higher the points. So if you get above a two on this criteria, you should be sent out for imaging because you likely have a blood clot in your leg. So typically you want above a two would warrant you going out for imaging. I had patients post COVID come in with a zero on the scale that were positive for DVT and that were in their mid thirties active prior. That's terrifying. And can you tell people here the type of imaging they get? Cause people might be think it's like a very invasive thing, but as you know, just tell them how easy it is. Oh, the Doppler ultrasound. So they utilize this thing called a Doppler ultrasound. It helps isolate whether there's a blood clot within the leg. It, people would think it's extremely scary. It's, it's not. And it's generally great to go out and talk to your physician about if you're feeling like you have any symptoms or anything. Like a lot of sim- typical symptoms that patients would present with is le- uh, pain in the back of the leg or in the calf along the outside a little bit. And any kind of pain with bringing their toes up towards their nose rather than pointing like a ballerina. Plus like that unilateral swelling, right? Mm -hmm. One leg that's more swollen than another. Like we see it in outpatients, um, orthopedics, like we monitor it with people who've been through traumatic surgeries. And so these people haven't been through traumatic surgeries post COVID, but their body has been through something traumatic internally. Mm -hmm. So very important to monitor healthy or not, or um, probably talking to your doctor before you go back to physical activity, right? Just making sure that they think you're clear to start that. So that way, you know, you don't go back to run right away, have symptoms and develop something like this. Absolutely. But the main thing too, with it was getting up and out of bed, getting the patient moving. There are extremely decreased risks of getting a blood clot. If you are immediately mobile. So the studies are always obvious, right? That people who move and move more, get blood clots less, therefore less likely to have some of these symptoms. And especially in like acute settings like hospitals and facilities, but even just in a standard outpatient, people who are getting up and moving when they have COVID, if they're at home and you're quarantining your room, getting up and walking around the room, getting those steps in. So that, you know, goes to, you know, those blood clots are vascular related um, and vascular issues, post-viral infections aren't necessarily uncommon, right? There are things that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can you talk a little bit to people just about how maybe the heart is a little bit more affected by something like COVID versus, you know, we don't know versus everything else, but possibly, you know, what the relationship might be there about why we've seen more cardiac issues with people. So there's like an enzyme that recent studies have been looking into that's typically linked with COVID in terms of the heart. It's called the angiotensin converting enzyme two. And it's well, not a short enough name. Yeah, they probably have an abbreviation to it. Uh, It's well recognized as an entry receptor used by the virus in the respiratory cells. Mm. So it's abundantly expressed in the human heart, which was kind of why people saw that link between heart issues and people contracting worse symptoms with the virus. Yeah, I think in that same study, because Kira and I were reading up on it, you know, they talk about how, you know, in the COVID, the spike protein does affect the vascular cells a lot more than some other um, viruses. So it's, you know, uniquely able to enter vascular cells and cause dysfunction there more. So likely why people have, you know, myocarditis has been an issue in people, DVTs, all vascular issues were, are the biggest things. Even those pulmonary issues ultimately could be related to that vascular um, dysfunction. But Kira, what about with the pulmonary issues? Like 
you know, the shortness of breath, you know, a lot of people, when you get sick, you tend to take shallower breaths, right? You tend to breathe shallower. Your respiratory rate goes up because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't take those deep breaths that you're used to taking that help fill the lungs with oxygen and oxygenate blood more and tissue. So what about simple solutions people can do to improve, you know, deep breathing to help improve shortness of breath or fatigue? We used a lot of pursed lip breathing on the unit, which is for those who aren't familiar with it, the best way to describe it is to smell the flowers and blow out the candles, <sighs> like in through your nose and out through your mouth. Very nice. <laughs> and we utilize that a lot when patients were short of breath in terms of this exercise grading that we were doing. So any kind of exercise grading, I wouldn't suggest someone who is immediately post COVID who had any mild symptoms even to jump right back into exercise. You have to kind of grade and listen to your body and have that body connection where you understand that you're not capable of what you were prior to the disease. And when you're talking about um, that here, you're talking about like a perceived exertion scale where you're giving people, you know, grade as far as how difficult this task feels. We would utilize RP a lot in terms of uh, post COVID. We would utilize RP a lot in terms of acute COVID Patients were very likely to be shortness of breath immediately when they got into like specific positions. So we would go a lot off of immediate vitals because a lot of them were so focused on regaining their breath pattern. They couldn't really give us a number in terms of RPE. And what about using something as simple? You can get them on Amazon, like inspirometers for people who might be, you know, in in that long hauler stage, still feel like they can't take deep breaths, you know, something that could be $20. Like, would you recommend people, I mean, I think any doctor would encourage it for a healthy person to do it. But what about those people like doing inspirometer treatments um, to encourage full, you know, deep breathing? Or can you explain to people what the inspirometer, you know, the purpose of it is and what it does? Is the inspirometer the thing that you put on your finger to test your blood oxygen? That's the pulse ox. Okay. Also good to monitor. Nice try though, Natalia. Darn it. Well, that's what you guys are the experts. Yeah. So So, so tell people about, you know, the difference maybe between if they're confused, a pulse oximeter versus an inspirometer. So the pulse ox for people who aren't familiar, it's that little clip that kind of goes on the edge of the finger. If you're in a hospital or you'll see it, it measures the percent oxygen going on. So typically when you go off of that, there's certain numbers that you would play with. A lot of times, most patients should be, or anybody in a general population, 98% and above. So we had patients, if anyone's familiar with any kind of respiratory diseases, typically we like to see them above 93%. That makes sense. Which with respiratory diseases is a lower percent, Mm -hmm. but that's their normal in terms of being affected by respiratory issues. So if people have that low pulse ox and you're working with them post COVID, you expect that purslip breathing to help with that oxygenation rate pretty quickly, right? Yes. It typically helps very quickly in a slow pattern. It allows the body to kind of adjust and more oxygen into the body through the lungs. So then that inspirometer would be, you know, um, just explain to people what that is and the purpose. The purpose of that just helps with taking deep breaths. A lot of it can help with uh, preventing collapsed lungs, especially in terms of COVID patients. So a lot of these patients would use incentive spirometers throughout their treatment as well. Is this a, a sort of a machine that you insert into your lungs? or is No, it it's a device that you use with breathing. Oh, so it's a device okay. they kind of utilize throughout patients with any yeah. kind of... So it looks like a little... Um, it's a little plastic device. It has a little tube that you just, you know, put your lips on to breathe through. Mm-hmm. And gotcha. as you inhale and exhale, it's got like a little meter where the ball rises. Oh, I think I've seen and so, yeah. you know, the important part of that is like a lot of people when they're sick, they mm-hmm. use their upper rep- respiratory system only. And when COVID gets really severe, it's when it enters the lower respiratory system. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, what's that? What's the difference? Well, just the upper lobes, people, when you're shallow breathing, you tend to only oxygenate those upper lobes. Whereas when you take those deep breaths and you fill the entire lung volume up, uh, your FEV, I think it is, you mm-hmm. tend to inflate your lower lobes and get oxygen on there. And obviously if you get a virus and it enters into that lower respiratory, it's much more difficult for your body to clear. So by taking those big breaths, using the inspirometer, getting that visual feedback is important for people. So I think, you know, using that as someone who maybe is battling it just to help you get that feedback of what the deep breath should feel like and go through, you know, maybe, you know, I have no exact recommendation. I'm sure the respiratory therapists out there would, but you know, you could do, you know, 20, you know, deep in the morning, 20 in the lunchtime, you know, just to help clear secretions as well. It would. Right. So it kind of just sounds like the biggest change you can make or biggest difference you can make is sort of just exercising your lungs, your heart, but not moving too quickly in order to burn yourself out or cause even more damage. Absolutely. And that's kind of why we were seeing a lot more patients in the outpatient setting following that Mm -hmm. as these patients would go to their doctor and say, you know, I don't feel safe entering exercise back due to this medical issue that we were having here. So a lot of patients were coming in and they thought, you know, it's best to grade back into this exercise under the care of a medical professional, where I know that if something were to go wrong, it can be assessed and treated. That makes sense. So just to uh, tie things up, are are there any significant pointers or pieces of advice that you would give to someone um, based off of your experiences and also just everything that you know? What where should people go to find help for these post-COVID symptoms? I think if you're still presenting with any issues in terms of symptoms six weeks after, it is recommended that you see a physician to clear anything. If you're having any issues in terms of exercise and you just feel like you have your fatigue or shortness of breath isn't is not is high in terms of what your regular activity typically is, you can always come in and see a physical therapist in terms of that and grading back into your normal daily activities with, with while feeling safe. Uh, another thing I like to tell patients in terms of the symptoms is taste and smell. If you have, if that persists past three months, it's very likely that you should see a physician as people don't realize the taste and smell is something operated by the cranial nerves in your brain. People think that that's typically something going on with just like your tongue, but it has to do with nerve input. Kevin, any last words? I think, you know, the important part is recognizing if, you know, six weeks later, your normal day-to-day life has not been restored. Like, you know, you can't go up and down your stairs without, you know, hunched over breathing or whether or not you can't go on the walks. You used to go on with the dog and it's still problematic. You know, we expect it may be, right? We know it may be post-COVID, but making sure you're not just, you know, your fever is gone. So you think you're better, but you follow up with your doctor and say, Hey, I'm still having these issues. I want to get back to what I want to do. What do you think? Making sure they clear you do all their tests, make sure you're appropriate. And then, you know, working with a physical therapist or an exercise physiologist or someone who can help Mm -hmm. teach you how to monitor what is, you know, a normal amount of perceived exertion to feel on that exercise, how to monitor your pulse ox, how to monitor your heart rate, how quickly your heart rate should return after exercise. Um, and I think if you, you know, it, I don't think it's super complicated in 95% of people with that post COVID, uh, you know, you don't, people don't, aren't realizing how much, you know, that a virus of any kind can kind of kick your butt and, uh, beat you down. But so it may take time to come back, but for most people, I think it's probably manageable as long as you have the right education and tools for what you should monitor, what you should look out for. And you have, you know, a team with you that's on your side who can encourage you 
and, you know, just put a course of care in front of you to get you back to what you want to do. You know, we don't know if there's scarring in the lungs that happens on people who have, you know, there's not enough out there, but hopefully, you know, these things do resolve the time. The lungs ha- do have a remarkable capability of regenerating themselves with treatment and time. And so hopefully people, yeah, you know, don't give up, but they seek care for it and don't just assume like, oh, I'm just out of shape. You, know, you may be out of shape, but there may be a good reason for why you're, you're out of shape. Absolutely. And I think that having these like symptoms present and continue over this course of time, getting it addressed and understanding that there are medical professionals out there. If you call a clinic and ask if any of the PTs or any of the doctors have experience with working with patients who have symptoms that are presenting past the normal timeline. And if they have anyone they suggest to kind of talk to about that and where to go from there. We suggest Kira. (laughs) We don't pretend to know everything we have. Kira's got the most experience. So we let her deal with it. Plus she's nicer than the rest of us. Awesome. And I'm sure her last name is easier to pronounce than yours. Uh, Clom is not that easy. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a little complicated. I mean, there's no, yeah. It is. Should I start calling you Coda then? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You can call me whatever you want though. It doesn't matter. Sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time out of your day to come on the podcast and talk about your expertise and ask all the right questions. So thank you both. Um, if anybody has any questions or wants to get in touch with either Kevin or Kira, um, or even just suggest a topic for us to do a podcast on, uh, please email us at podcast at performance optimal health.com and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.